The older I get, the more I look at movies as a moving miracle. Audiences are harder to please if you're just giving them special effects, but they're easy to please if it's a good story. Steven Spielberg. You're listening to Writing Roots, brought to you by Aspen House Publishing. Welcome to Writing Roots. I'm Lee Hole. And I'm Lee Esses. And today we are talking about quite possibly the single invention that has changed storytelling the most, maybe even more than the printing press. We're talking about storytelling through film. Film and TV have both become the main way that a lot of people across the world consume story, more so than books and theater. This is a way to reach people quickly and in condensed ways so that even those that don't like to read can get a story in a time that they like, just a couple of hours. There is a definite intimacy lost when you're translating something from book to film. That's why if you ask anyone who's read the novel if they prefer the novel or the film, they'll almost always say they prefer the novel because they had an intimate connection with the story as they were reading it. So before we had film, way, way back, the visual way to tell a story was with drawings on cave walls. There was a recent study that I read about online that basically said that the vertical lines going through a lot of these cave paintings are actually an attempt at mimicking motion. So when you get some flickering light as compared to the fluorescence that they shine on a lot of these type of archaeological sites, when you get a flickering light like fire, it casts shadows in weird ways and makes it so the images behind these vertical lines start to look like they're moving. If we want to almost say that's film, the technology and the way the eye interprets these images is very similar to how the eye interprets film. Obviously, they're not the same, but it's an interesting precursor to storytelling through film. Of course, with all these images of the hunt and this and that, it was thought that you'd have one person with a torch leading people through the caves telling them stories while they're looking at this imagery. That actually reminds me of a video I saw, I think on Instagram the other day. Somebody had this drawing of a T-Rex and it was hardly recognizable as a T-Rex because it was just a bunch of kind of scattered lines and drawings. But then they took another paper that had a bunch of lines over the top of it. It, So it was kind of see-through. So you had just basically a little sheet of see-through stripes. And as they moved it across the drawing of the weird T-Rex, it would line up with the lines just right to make it look like the T-Rex was moving. So its head was bobbing, its arms were kind of jiggling, its legs were going back and forth, and its tail was going up and down. So it created motion without actually doing anything other than sliding some transparent lines over the top of a piece of paper. That is super cool. Jumping forward a whole lot, another precursor to especially photojournalism is the Bayou Tapestry. A lot of people say that's the first photojournalism. That happened in 1066, and it was a 70-meter-long tapestry of a sequence of events that led to William the Conqueror taking the throne. It's not exactly film because there's no mimicking of motion, but there is a need to document in a visual format to tell the world a story. That's why I wanted to include it in this list. And that's what we're talking about with film, is it's not just using film to document a horse running to see if all four legs come off the ground. It's not just showing men riding bicycles at the Nickelodeon. It is telling story through a visual art. So, of course, even today, the strongest links that we draw to this are in theater, 
where you're watching a story play out on stage live. With film, it's not live usually, but we are still watching a story unfold. So while film motion picture was created in the late 1800s, they didn't start to use this as a way to tell story until the early 1900s. I personally put that with the advent of editing. Editing allows you to change in an instant your location, your site, seeing what's happening in one place and then another. This must have been very strange for the first few times it was witnessed, but everything we know about storytelling today comes from hopping points of view, changing locations, all of the stuff that you couldn't do in theater without a 10-minute scene change, you can do in an instant with editing. So the early ones looked a lot like theater, with long shots, nothing breaking it up, one steady camera angle. But you have people like George Millier who came in and started being creative with the editing process. He started to use jump cuts to show transformations and a lot of kind of magic trick things to help him tell a story like A Trip to the Moon, where even today people recognize the image of A Trip to the Moon, where you have this thing landing on the moon's face like it's landing in cheese. This also allowed for a completely fictional narrative. We were asking humanity to expand its mindset beyond the Pirates of Penzance and into traveling outside of the world. With the technology of film, we were also able to use stop motion and take a picture, move something, take a picture, move something, put the pictures right next to each other in the way that film works and the eye interprets movement when there isn't any. And again, George Melier was one of the people to do this. He would do stop motion. He would do slow motion. He would even hand paint the film afterwards to have color in his movies. This is the early, early 1900s we're talking about. And he was introducing all of this because he had a story to tell. He wanted to show the world the worlds that he was creating in his mind, whether that was a trip to the moon or an underwater adventure. In the 1910s, there was a huge height of creativity and a boom that came with a lot of people immigrating to the U.S. And so a lot of stories all colliding in what became the center of film for a lot of years. Of course, that was entirely silent. We didn't have any vocals integrated into storytelling for a while. So if someone would say something, you would see them mouth it, and then we would see a card with the text that everyone was supposed to read. And this is that lady saying that thing. This era of silent film relied on showing, pantomiming. Everything was very dramatic in their motions because it wasn't the seamless you know, 60 frames per second recording, this might have been, I don't know, a frame a second? <laughs> a little more than that. I think it was around 15 to 20, depends on how fast you cranked it. Yeah, because it was hand cranked as it was being captured. So, you know. So they relied a lot on big emotion, big showing, a lot like theater does. Because in theater, you don't just slyly smirk, you have to really show it so those people in the back can see you smirking. And let's be real, a lot of those actors that we see on the screen were stolen from the stage. The stage was really still the primary outlet of visual entertainment at this point. After World War I, the Roaring Twenties kicked in and actors and actresses began to specialize in film or theater. Because in the 1920s, we finally got a way to record audio so you could have sound in film. Now, all of a sudden, you can mix the audio and the visual together and 
tell a more seamless story without being interrupted by title cards. There's a very common saying in most filmmaking circles today, and that is good video is better audio. All of a sudden, something became more believable because we heard it. The jazz singer could sing because we heard it. This opened up enormous amounts of stories that we were simply too limited to tell back then. And in the very end of the 1920s, Film was so popular, film stars were popular enough that this was the creation of the Academy Awards. The very first Academy Awards were given in 1929. Unfortunately, just like the economy and the Roaring Twenties had to come to an end, so did this fantastic era of filmmaking because of the Great Depression. In the 1930s, it pulled back a lot of the filmmaking because they were suddenly way too expensive to create. But this was good news for authors because authors began to write stories that were really long. If you look at storytelling styles in the late 1800s through about the 20s, it gets faster and faster and more and more concise as people are getting more and more exposure to the visual mediums of storytelling. All of a sudden, with the Great Depression, people had very little money, but a whole lot of time. And the Dickens style of writing words just to write words came back with a passion. This era of the Great Depression showed a rise in monster fiction in film. You have Dracula, you have Frankenstein, you have The Mummy. All of these kind of horror movies are popping up in this Great Depression era. There was a weird dichotomy between books and film at this point because a lot of books became very depressing, very realistic. Whereas a lot of films became very escapist. Of course, there was some of each in both. You can find examples in both. But you started seeing more films about people who are living in lavish apartments in Paris with feathers and chocolates all around because people started wanting that kind of escapism. So as the world climbs out of this Great Depression, we hit an era of film storytelling that just takes off. You get the very first full-length animated film in 1937 with Snow White. Two years later, you get the first film that was shot in color, not painted to be color. And there's an argument between scholars if that's Wizard of Oz or Gone with the Wind because they were both released in 1939. But one, I believe, was started shooting first, and then the other was released first. And so there's this little tug of war. But they were both groundbreaking in the film storytelling world. This is also when we started to see a little more books being directly translated to film. Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz. Both of these were books before they made it to the screen. This is a little different than the monster fiction because we saw... Frankenstein being treated differently than he was in the book. After the Great Depression came World War II. In the 1940s, you have this rallying. While, yes, a lot of the world was experiencing a lot of hardship, there was an effort in storytelling and in film especially to try to show hope, to represent the good and kind of almost ignore the bad that was happening in the world. They really embraced the idea of escapism. They also wanted to make the fights look like they were worth it. To help with that, they introduced superheroes. Superman was introduced in 1938, Captain America just a couple years later in 41. We will be covering a little bit more about superheroes next episode. But this idea of inspiring the troops, Captain America punched Hitler in the face 
these types of things integrating the real world with these magical hero characters, these larger-than-life hero characters, in the form of comic books that could travel, became more and more popular. If it weren't for film, I honestly believe comic books would not exist because the minds of the audiences wouldn't have been trained to understand panel with information, panel with information as it's moving through. Definitely. Silent films, I think, helped create this world where comics could exist. And during this era as well, you have a lot more book-to-film adaptations. You have The Grapes of Wrath. You started to get some of the fairy tale adaptations. You got that with the first animated Snow White, but then they started doing it in live-action film as well with Beauty and the Beast. Not to lose track of what was being published in the written form, a lot of those things were a little more existential and a little more dour. Things like 1984 and The Diary of Anne Frank, Darkness at Noon and Animal Farm, all of these stories were fairly dark as they're being written, often as a reflection of the war and the tragedy that surrounded it. So moving on to the 1950s, the war has ended and the Allied nations are surging into this world of prosperity, picking up and rebuilding the pieces after such massive destruction from the war. So you get, especially in the United States, a surge in prosperity among the people. People could have televisions in their home. There was still quite a bit of entertainment being fed through radios, but color in film was becoming basically commonplace, and the only time you would need black and white is artistic, like we're using it now. But this sudden burst of access from the common people to film changed how people looked at film. It was no longer a dress up in your Sunday best. It was hop in the car in your poodle skirt and head over with your date to the drive-in. Books during this time also kind of set trends in Hollywood with the kinds of stories that were being created and told. Authors also started to kind of push back against this era of filmmaking and trying to write things that would be impossible to convert onto film, at least with that era of film and technology. For example, Lord of the Rings was released during this time, and in the 1950s, any version of the Lord of the Rings would not have been good. That didn't necessarily stop filmmakers from trying, though. We did have Godzilla released during this time, 1954, and to our eyes that have seen Godzilla CG trouncing about the world, this is very lame. There is some stop motion and a little bit of like cuts between them and people screaming and looking up and then like this clay monster going and smashing something out of the sky. It Not a clay monster, a dude in a rubber suit in a miniature village. <laughs> yeah. It still couldn't compare to the imagination that the ABCs of sci-fi were starting to bring to the table. We're talking Asimov, Bradbury, and Clark. They are the founding fathers of sci-fi, in a way. Asimov is best known for his rules of robotics. Bradbury brought us creations such as Fahrenheit 451. And Clark was really about the future, and 2001 A Space Odyssey. So while science fiction started a long time before. This was kind of the advent of modern science fiction, of robots and space travel and kind of dystopian ideas of what the future would be. Bradbury was kind of on the outs on that. With the prosperity that came with the 50s, a lot of people were very optimistic about what the future would hold. Maybe we might soon land on the moon. Tomorrowland is a place of bright and beautiful adventures, and how far can we go with something 
as cool as technology. Then you had Bradbury, who was kind of calling back to the 40s era of more depressive outlooks of the future and what it could possibly hold. And throughout the rest of the time between then and now, there is this pendulum swing back and forth of optimistic, pessimistic, optimistic, pessimistic. I'd say right now we're right at the end of a pessimistic swing. But in the 60s, we moved toward the optimistic side with a lot of sci-fi having to do with things like space travel. You started to have Star Trek becoming popular and Doctor Who and the wonders of technology and all of the adventures and the stories that that can bring. The 1960s was a really interesting time in filmmaking. This was really the start of the, oh, that was popular, let's make another one just like it and profit off of the popularity idea. You had a bunch of movies coming out, a bunch of shows coming out that all had the same feel, the same ideas behind them because that's what was popular and that's what would get money. A classic example of this is the Sword and Sandals era. This was a lot of biblical type stories, so it wasn't under copyright. And you saw the Ten Commandments and Cleopatra and these types of... Ben-Hur. Exactly. These types of stories that all profited off of each other. And you will see that even today when you see Pirates of the Caribbean and then a whole bunch of pirate stuff comes out. And then Lord of the Rings and a whole bunch of fantasy stuff comes out. Hunger Games, and then a whole bunch of YA dystopian stories come out. So in the 60s, you had the Sword and Sandal. Then a little bit later, you had the Spaghetti Westerns. We can start talking about film in genre categories because they came out in surges like this. You have your monster film transforming from monsters into psychological horror with Psycho and other Alfred Hitchcock creations. You mentioned spaghetti westerns. We also saw a little bit of regionalization with film. Until this point, it was everyone throwing anything they can at the screen. The French had a very different way of early filmmaking than everybody else. But if you think about Bollywood films today, we had the spaghetti westerns in a similar category back then. During the 1960s, there was a lot of political turmoil, especially in the United States, which was considered kind of the center of filmmaking at the time. So you got a lot in the late 60s, a political commentary in fiction. You had the Vietnam War and people were talking about it in the way they told stories. Suddenly film became a way to comment on what was happening in the world. So this contrasts kind of the 1940s a little bit where film was used to push the idea of World War II being a good thing for the world and for the people and go out there, join the army, sign up, and let's go fight the Nazis. Well, in the 1960s, it took a hard turn to using film as a way to say, this is bad, we shouldn't be over there, let's fight against the idea of the Vietnam War. This wasn't just happening in the United States, though, either. Other countries would also use film as a way to comment on the political aspects of their world. So Return of the Blind Dead was a Spanish film in the early 1970s. And the author used it subversively as a way to comment on the Catholic Church's control over the Spanish government, and especially on a local level, without actually really showing that, because then he would get in trouble. So they started to use creative ways to comment on the world. And of course, my favorite thing to come out of the 60s is space! Do we do Doctor Who? <laughs> we also saw Star Trek, and then a little bit later, Star Wars. 2001 A Space Odyssey, 
Planet of the Apes, the Time Machine film. All of these stories were a reflection of the American mood and hope in the space race, which, of course, finished at the end of the 60s. So with the end of the space race and the advent of the 1970s, technology started to become more accessible to people at home outside of just televisions. You started to get home recording devices that people could bring home and make their own movies. This put Hollywood in a very weird spot because all of a sudden, Joe Blow at home is making his films. We need to do something even cooler that he can't do in order to maintain superiority. We start to see a little bit of computer graphics edging their way into films in the 70s. So you had Star Wars with one of the first uses of CGI to create the light of the lightsabers. So it was this time started to show a shift towards visual effects that would start to become way more popular in the 80s. On top of this, because they needed to be more creative, they started to push the boundaries and the restrictions on what could be shown in movies loosened a lot thanks to the hippie movement. So during the 1950s is when you started to have the ratings in films as I recall. And there was a push toward, we are better than the Russians. See how great we are. If somebody doesn't, ma doesn't make our list of good, wholesome people, we're going to kick them out of the entire industry. Come the 70s, we have a relaxing of, hey, we can show things if they are more realistic. Of course, if we're talking about storytelling and you're listening to Writing Roots, we can't mention a landmark storytelling invention that came in the 70s. Dungeons and Dragons. So you had this surge with in film of making your own movies at home. Well, what about fantasy? What if you wanted to create your own fantasy at home? This was where Dungeons and Dragons came in. Suddenly you could be a wizard. You could have magic and fight monsters and do it all in your own storytelling setting with your friends. Dungeons and Dragons had a very interesting amount of collaborative fiction that was also incredibly temporary. Unless someone took like adamant notes, it was gone. We just enjoyed it in that exact moment. We didn't need to have theater documenting everything. There are adventures that are collaborative stories that were written after 1974 that will never be heard again because they were experienced and gone. That makes me very sad because there were probably a lot of really good stories that were told in the beginnings of Dungeons and Dragons. Let's be real, it's mostly half-naked barbarian women swinging swords. I mean, probably. And a lot of bards. So many bards. Dungeons and Dragons had a really interesting cultural impact. So we move from the 70s and into the 80s, and in Dungeons and Dragons specifically, this is where the satanic panic came in in the world. People started to worry, what are those stories that are being told in people's basements among their friends. Like, what are they actually doing? And of course, the satanic panic was not helped at all by our good old friend Stephen King. <laughs> he published The Stand in 78, then Pet Cemetery in 83, It in 86. All of these horror stories that would strike fear into people in a way that we hadn't seen since Hitchcock. So we have Poltergeist and The Lost Boys and all of these things coming out in the 80s. Again, there's a transformation in the horror genre. So we had monster fiction and then we had psychological horror. And with the 80s, we had a blending of the two. So you have some monsters 
but it's mostly psychological still. That pendulum about the future is also starting to swing back toward the negative here. We're starting to see things like the Terminator where the future might not be so bright. We may have all this really cool technology. Sure, we have robots, but what happens if those robots are bad? As kind of a dichotomy to the sci-fi world where everything is swinging towards the non-optimistic. In contemporary storytelling, teen coming-of-age stories, it was kind of the opposite of the satanic panic. Filmmakers were wanting to show this bright, optimistic view of what teenagers were really like. And I say that with a lot of sarcasm. We started seeing the Brat Pack, which included films like Breakfast Club, Sixteen Candles, and The Outsiders as a film. As a book, it was written in the 60s, but as a film, it was released in the 80s. These are the films that parents are okay letting their kids watch. They aren't allowed to watch scary films like It. They are allowed to watch The Breakfast Club because parents are often paying for the kids' excursions until they have a job and are doing their own thing. Which is so funny, because if you watched The Breakfast Club, this was really embracing that idea that the 70s brought in of really loose ratings. Really loose ratings. Oh, but that gets worse in the 90s. Oh, it absolutely does. (laughs) At the very end of the 80s and into the 90s, in the novel world, we have another small burst in sci-fi, but it's not the soft sci-fi of Doctor Who and Star Trek. It's more hard sci-fi of Jurassic Park and Sphere. These things brought on by Crichton. You're really trying to bring in at this time a hard link to science. We're not saying the science is right, but they are trying to use science to explain these fantastic things that are happening in their sci-fi. You know, with Doctor Who, it's a lot of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. It's not really explained, but in Jurassic Park, you have an explanation of, you know, we were able to extract DNA of the dinosaurs from this mosquito that was trapped in amber, which could be plausible if the technology were in the right place for that, because, yeah, we could believe that a mosquito who just ate from a dinosaur is got trapped in amber, sure. Let's suspend our disbelief that far, but there is a somewhat plausible scientific explanation for how this could have occurred. With CGI leaping forward when Jurassic Park came out, a lot of the writing world did something similar to what they did earlier and did the, I'm going to write something that you can't put on the screen. George R. R. Martin is a classic example of that. He was part of the film industry, went, I hate you all, I'm going to write a story about a wall of ice that's a thousand feet tall and we can never do this in film, so therefore books are still better. Fast forward a few dozen years and where are we? Game of Thrones, baby. (laughs) In the 90s, you also had a surge in animation storytelling. Another callback to the era of fairy tales. And this was brought on with the Disney Renaissance. You had Little Mermaid in 1989. You had The Beauty and the Beast soon after that, Aladdin, a surge in this bright, hopeful world for children, giving them a new way to consume these old stories. This is when Disney princesses started to really become a thing, and kids could dress up like The Little Mermaid and pretend that they were mermaids as they were taking baths. Did that more than once. In the second half of the 90s, we saw a burst in standalones, movies that couldn't be made into sequels. And sometimes we're still made into them anyways. Yeah. Matrix is the first one that comes to mind in this regard, and this is when we were ending the hopeful edge of how we looked at the future. The later Matrix movies made it very clear the future is bad, but the first Matrix movie didn't look at the future that way. 
Of course, a lot of filmmakers were trying to make big epic statements like Gladiator and Titanic. These films that could not have a sequel were putting it all into this one film. And one of my favorite things to come out of the 90s were the early morning Saturday cartoons. You have animated superhero coming out. You had Batman, I remember Gargoyles and Darkwing Duck. A lot of your Disney animation started to go into television rather than film, or I guess both hand in hand. Off the top of my head, this is also my first exposure to Japanese animation with Sailor Moon in that collection. Animation started to take on another meaning and another way to tell stories that was faster, cheaper. You could produce a lot more in a short amount of time because you didn't have to build animatronic T-Rexes. You could just sketch it. During this time, you also have a huge advancement in technology. So you get some more reliance on CGI. You had the very first almost all CGI film in the 80s with Tron. You had a character that was computer animated and computer voiced to the early 2000s where suddenly we can use this animation in epic storytelling. Those stories that were written that could never be on screen could suddenly be on screen and in epic ways with Lord of the Rings coming out in 2001. This is also a huge leap as far as motion capture. If you look at Andy Serkis on set of Lord of the Rings, he played Gollum. He's in like a gray pajama suit with white dots on it so that the animators could then superimpose this character over him and capture his performance still. We saw a little bit of that in Jar Jar Binks as well. So you have this fantastic use of technology in storytelling to create things that could never have been created before. So it's this surge in filmmaking where it's suddenly becoming really, really popular. So you have Lord of the Rings, you have Harry Potter. Not too long after that, you get the Pirates of the Caribbean coming out with some fantastic CGI for the time. You may have noticed the first two that she has listed were also very popular books before they became films. Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. This is an era of something proving itself in a smaller market before Hollywood takes it on and dumps a whole lot of money into it. We also saw the first Chronicles of Narnia around this time in the 2000s. And of course, this was an era of sequels. I think a lot of people are really fed up with sequels and remakes right about now because we want new, fresh ideas in storytelling. Because we've been getting book adaptations and sequels for about 20 years now. That's a long time to have just one form of media in your film that is most popular. But this also created a niche market for independent films for something new. The Sundance Film Festival may have started in the 70s, but it didn't really take off in popularity until the 2000s, where it became way easier for independent filmmakers to create good products. At kind of the height of this, you had 500 Days of Summer in 2009, which was hugely popular worldwide while still being an indie film. Along with this popularization of these independent films came a great opportunity for people to break into the market. This happened in 2007 with the writer's strike. So people were able to write down these scripts, write down all of these new ideas, and maybe even put them on this thing called the internet and tell stories that way. The internet was a great invention for the sharing of story and storytelling. So the writer's strike was a difficult time for Hollywood because you had writers demanding better pay, better rights, but you had a bunch of actors that still wanted to work. 
So they got together, created their own stuff, and used the internet. And you get wonderful creations such as Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. But the writers eventually lost the writer's strike and Hollywood was able to continue making their films in the way they knew best. That was by taking something that was proven to have an audience, have a market already, and creating something new with it. As technology and CGI kept getting better and better, we moved past the 3D, look, I'm throwing something at the camera because that makes it 3D. Jazz handsing these moments of technology, we moved past that into seamlessly making it a part of the art and putting the story on top again. But you had people starting to kind of complain about the number of sequels and not original content that was coming out. So in the late aughts, early tens, you had the spark. Iron Man came out in 2008 and the MCU exploded. This was great because it could capitalize on 75 years worth of content that people had been building this fandom of comic books for a really long time. And you could create new stories with today's technology and actually make someone look like they're flying without, you know, fishing line. Technology met fandom in a beautiful way. And Marvel took that one step further with the cinematic universe so that I could have watched three of the five Avengers movies and still followed the sequel that brought all of them together. So along with this idea of the superhero becoming popular again, this fight for what is right, even if the superheroes aren't always right themselves, you have a surge in young adult fiction of dystopian. Again, swinging towards the pessimistic outlook on the future with The Hunger Games coming out. The book came out in 2008. The movie came out in 2012. And that was the spark that lit all of the divergence in all of these other YA dystopian stories. If you want a little more information about how futuristic stories work and especially the dystopian genre, we are talking about that on Thursday, so stay tuned. So this era in the 2010s also was a time of remakes. We started to take old classics and make them over again. And we're still seeing that. Amazon wants to do a remake of The Lord of the Rings as a TV series. People want to reimagine stories again and again and again. There's this idea of do it better or don't do it at all. Some things are just really good. Jurassic Park still stands up to today's technology because a lot of it was puppetry with a little bit of CGI mixed in. Trying to remake something like The Mummy or... Jurassic Park or Lord of the Rings, it's easy to insult the fandom, but something like Aragon, where the readers felt shorted and slighted by the film, could be remade into a new story and that audience still tapped into. This is a judgment call by Hollywood producers, whom I don't trust as storytellers most of the time. The biggest problem with this, and we won't get a, too much into this because this is rant territory, but it's a matter of money. They know that Lord of the Rings has a strong fan base. They know that people will spend money on Star Wars. So that's where they're focusing their attention, not on something that flopped once upon a time but the merchandising that comes with films. When was the last time you entered a big box store and did not see Baby Yoda somewhere? Home Depot? I think I saw Pez dispensers with Baby Yoda at one point. Probably. <laughs> merchandising for films is everywhere. You're seeing it more and more and more of selling merchandise attached to something. You're seeing Pokemon Oreos now. 
So we've spent a very long time talking about film and storytelling in film. So why does this matter if you're trying to write a book? Books are the advent of new storytelling. If you want to see what the world is going to find popular in storytelling a few years down the road, you look at novels now. This is where people go to the voting booths and they decide, we really like Outlander. We really like Game of Thrones. We really like Hunger Games. Then Hollywood goes, okay, you like The Martian. We're going to make it even more popular by making it into a film. That being said, film and books are not in competition with each other. People can consume both equally. When I go to watch a movie that's been based on a book, I try to not compare it to the book. I try to enjoy it as it is for what it is, a film. Inherently, they cannot tell the same exact story in the same way. With the creation of this, film started to become a fast way to tell story. It allowed people with shorter attention spans, busier schedules to take a break, watch a film for an hour and a half to two hours, and consume the same basic story as spending 50 hours reading a book. We do have binging on Netflix. It takes about the same time to watch a season of a TV show as it does to read a book, at least that I've written. But you can do it at the same time you're doing other things, which I think is the popularity in film, is you don't have to sit and focus on reading. This is also why audiobooks are becoming more important, because people are doing things. A lot of them think they can't sit and read anymore because there's too much going on. That means understanding your audience. Your audience has particular tastes, they have particular lifestyles, and particular genres they lean toward. Knowing where you fit in their world and how to tell your story in a way that makes sense to your audience is incredibly important. Some stories can only be told on the page. The story would lose something if we tried to move it to the screen. One thing we can learn, though, from film is that sight and sound are important elements to immersion storytelling. It's not just about the plot. You need to create a setting that people can imagine, can immerse themselves in. This includes making sure you're including details about what those characters are seeing and what they're hearing because people who are used to film are going to be expecting that because when they're watching a film they can hear everything audio producers are really important to film you don't want a sound that doesn't match with what they're seeing so the same thing applies to your books Film also brought about this connection to multiple characters at once, seeing multiple points of views at once. We can follow the damsel in distress who's tied to the railroad tracks and the hero on his horse on his way to her. So we can see him trotting on the horse and then we see the train coming towards her on the tracks and we see him on the horse again. This hopping back and forth between characters' points of view is something fairly new. In the Lord of the Rings book, it's divided into sections of, okay, here is Sam and Frodo's adventure from start to finish. Adventure is a loose term. They just walk a lot. So much. And here's the other part of the fellowship and their adventure start to finish. They aren't told seamlessly together like they are in the book where you're bouncing back and forth between points of view. So the film readapted and merged those timelines together into one because they were happening at the same time. We just weren't reading them at the same time like we do in the film where we're watching them occur simultaneously. On top of multiple characters, you also get multiple places at once. You can hop from 
hanging up the phone in the house to driving to the crime scene to the office again where the person gives more information. We don't need to see the boring parts. A lot of storytelling became a lot faster when we started editing film. I read a piece of somebody's work recently that that reminded me of. They got a letter and then it took four pages for them and they still didn't even reach their destination. And I was like, nothing in here is happening that's really useful. So can we just fast forward through all of this? One impact that filmmaking has is people want to fast forward through all of the things that are boring, that don't seem relevant. You don't really see that with Pride and Prejudice. You see them talking about the party. You see them invited to the party. You see them preparing for the party. You see them first attending the party. You see, you see every step of the process. With film, we can hop to the good part. As novelists, if your audience also watches film and TV shows, you cannot exclude that mentality of hopping to the good part. We're running really long on this, so we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. But remember that film and books are not exclusive in storytelling. There are elements that you can learn from one to apply to the other, whether it is you're trying to be a screenwriter or a novelist. Learn from popular fiction, popular storytelling, no matter what it is. That's the whole purpose of this entire month that we've been talking about the history of storytelling is to give you other ways to look at how you are telling your story. So keep an open mind. Find what it is in the films that you like to watch, that you really enjoy, and try to apply it to your writing. And while you do that, make sure that you write selfishly. If you have a question or comment for our hosts or a topic you'd like us to cover, send us an email at writingroots at aspenhousepublishing.com or find us on Facebook by searching for Aspen House Publishing. <laughs>